You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders, both in the UK and US. My name is Dave Loder, and I connect businesses with top technical talent, both in the UK and the US. And today, I am your host. Today, I'm joined by Sydney Pearl, Global Cybersecurity Executive. And the dis- topic of today's discussion is Connected Something. So thank you, first of all, for joining me, Sydney. Really appreciate you setting aside the time for me. Can you begin by giving us a bit of a, an introduction, a bit of a background to your professional um, history? Yeah, thank you, Dave. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Yes, yeah, so I spent uh, 20 years in the United States Navy and a number of different fields and activities. We'll go into a lot of detail on that, but that formed a foundation in technology. And that took me into the private sector after 12 years of active duty. And then I spent the rest of about eight years on in the reserves working with the Navy and, and ultimately finishing my time in the Navy. Uh, and since 1999, I've been working in the IT security field. And I've worked for a number of different large global security firms, and including I'm working for one today. And my background is quite extensive in the context of looking at uh, criminal behavior, uh, as well as uh, understanding strategy, risk, compliance, and then how do we identify bad actors before they can actually affect an organization. So I've been very fortunate in my career to work across government, military, law enforcement, private sector, across multiple industries and uh, certainly been able to advise a number of clients as to how to design and build strategy and and then tactically execute against that strategy in a way to where you can be more proactive in identifying threats before the effectual organization. So that's kind of my background. I've been now since my military days uh, into where I'm working today. I have about 28 to 30 years of experience and certainly welcome the opportunity to discuss uh, some of these topics here with you today. Great. Thank you and appreciate you um, giving that background. So the topic we've decided on today um, was actually the third title you came up with is Connected Something. So I guess to kick us off, can you explain to us, first of all, what you mean by Connected Something and Connected uh, Technology generally, and why is it an important topic for today's discussion? Well, it's important to everyone. We certainly can't simply say that the field of connected is is defined or relegated to corporations anymore, because that's that's certainly not the case. We certainly can no longer equally say that OT in operational technology in the context of manufacturing uh, is only applicable to the manufacturing environment, or IoT, Internet of Things, is only applicable to devices that uh, that we see uh, in refrigerators, washing machines, and things of that nature. Uh, it's really getting down to the consumer level. Now, equally, uh, it is now moving into automotive and the connected car or connected vehicle, depending on uh, the definition of what the industry is now calling it. So connected something is really starting to become more prolific. And the trends that we're seeing is that the connected something will ultimately and inevitably reach the human level in the context of 
technology being embedded within clothing, uh, being embedded into perhaps even the human anatomy. Uh, and that is the general direction and trajectory that things are moving uh, these days. And it's moving very rapidly. And that creates challenges, of course, in the context of security and how do you secure such a rapidly changing environment. So when we define con connected something, it can range all the way from uh, devices uh, to manufacturing, to people, to cars, to vehicles, to everything that we now start to do in our lives become more and more connected. And of course, that introduces a multitude of risks, threats, and opportunities uh, for bad guys to, to be able to operate and certainly be able to target um, the various operating environments. Right. And for the benefit of the listeners who aren't aware of what OT and IoT stand for and mean, are you able to sort of summarize, give us a brief um, definition of them? Certainly. Well, OT being, let's start there with operational technology. Keeping it very high level and simplistic is, think of it in the context of industrial controls. And when we say operational technology in the world of cybersecurity, there's a link, a direct link in a field that we're all familiar with, which is IT information technology, into OT, which is operational technology. So then the question becomes is, what is that link? The link is the systems that support the operational technology environment. So for example, the over the last, I'd say 10 to 20 years, uh, the industrial controls domain has been shifting to more IT-based type systems that have operational technology components or operational requirements associated with it. So when you start to converge IT platform-based systems that are supporting operational technology, for example, whether that be manufacturing industrial controls, whether that's got to do with an electrical grid or a nuclear facility, there are operational technologies that are operational and operational technology platforms that are operational, operationalized within those facilities that have an IT-oriented support platform associated with that. That definition introduces a number of risk and threats to those environments. In the past, in operational technology, those systems have been somewhat uh, firewalled off, if we were to use that term, and compartmentalized in such a way to where they were more physical controls and how the operators managed those systems. However, that is no longer the case. And the introduction of IT into the operational technology environment, of course, introduces a number of risks associated with that. So that's what we're defining as operational technology. In IoT, the Internet of Things, this is where it starts to get a bit more precarious for the consumer themselves. And this is where the, the internet of things is now moving, not just from devices at the, at the uh, say the appliance level, but it's moving to the actual vehicle, in the vehicle, out of the vehicle, over there updates for vehicles, as well as moving to and associated with the actual consumer and human being themselves. And so the Internet of Things is now becoming more and more profound and more and more prolific. And at the rate of change that one hour experiencing, for example, when you start talking about ocular lenses, 
in connecting those types of devices for virtual reality, gaming, and other factors and training and education, then the Internet of Things becomes more and more important to an environment by which technology is moving so fast that the bad guys have the opportunity to be able to take advantage of that speed of change that is occurring, knowing that cybersecurity struggles to keep pace with what it's doing today. So the Internet of Things is, in it by its definition, associated with anything that has an internet connection, and which is why we're now calling it in this current podcast the connected something, uh, because everything is certainly becoming more and more connected. And as that trajectory of path of technology continues down that path, then it's becoming more challenging for cybersecurity to not only take care of what they have to do today, but how will they address the threats of the future? Brilliant. And although I know they're far from, um, you know, completely separate for simplicity, for a second, if we can separate OT and IoT, I guess from IoT, it's, um, as you alluded to, as you mentioned, there is a much more direct um, risk and benefit to consumers. If we're looking at OT for a second, if there are these risks here, which weren't around prior to introducing or using and implementing IT more in these industrial control systems, why are we now using it? What is the benefit to companies of of implementing these OT and uh, IT tech? Scale. Uh, scale and the ability to evolve, evolve more rapidly, uh, updates. You know, let's take a nuclear facility, which I am by no means an expert uh, in that domain, um, but I will certainly say that in the context of, of just some simplicity conversation, the, the facilities of the past were very manual in the context of an operator needing to go in and shut down valves and, and do various things. Uh, in IT, even in now in the electrical grid environment, in, introducing IT in that environment enables the ability to be able to do faster updates, to be able to implement new changes, new software, new capabilities, which was a challenge in the past. You were much more restricted in what you could actually do and left with the actual physical controls of what you would do to work with an industrial control environment and had no real ability to be able to do rapid or scalable updates in such a way to where you could change the threat vector. Those threats at that time were more physical in nature. With the introduction of IT, it certainly presents a number of opportunities for new software solutions to be introduced, uh, greater capabilities, uh, greater scalability. So there are lots of benefits associated with moving industrial controls into uh, an operational technology environment. But equally, it introduces a number of cybersecurity threats associated with that as well. And the conduit by which you enter an environment uh, through the criminal network or bad actor domain enables them to be able to leverage the IT operating environment in the normal context as they might if they were targeting any other IT-related infrastructure, which leads us into the operational technology environment. And from there can then pivot any number of different directions to be able to conduct their activities and cause potential harm. 
And and I think that's part of what I'm wanting to say here is that the the threats of the past have been relegated to equipment, infrastructure, and things of that nature. The threats of the future are going to become more important as it relates to risk of life. And that's going to be a, a pretty large dichotomy and difference of how things have operated in the past and how they're going to operate in the future. Sure. And I think that's something that's definitely the forefront of a lot of CISOs' minds, particularly if they are working this um, they have got OT systems as well, that there's a big fear that, you know, a breach uh, or an attack, there is very realistic threat to life. Now, so there's obviously a risk reward sort of um, way up that companies have got to do here. And you mentioned scalability or efficiency um, are kind of some of the improvements that, that companies can see. Um, could you give us a bit of an idea of... Um, realistic threats um and what the consequences would be to i don't know the general public so we're looking at a water treatment center for example or we're looking at nuclear power station what are these threats and how kind of scary or realistic are they well i'm actually going to bring it down to an actual human level uh because when we talk about nuclear facilities and we talk about the electrical grid everyone understands that that affects them but that's out there somewhere right but when we start to bring it down to uh, let's say your automobile in your vehicle that you're going to be operating as technology shifts to uh, future autonomous vehicles more electric vehicles and the technology becomes more integrated into those vehicles then that rate of change in technology, of course, can affect the the type of cybersecurity that needs to be in place with that. So certainly, if we were to start at the, the, the broadest scope of things and looking at nuclear facilities and the electrical grid, some would argue that, well, nuclear facilities, yes, unless that's close to you and that's going to have a direct impact on your, your energy, um, then most people would say, well, that doesn't apply to me. So nuclear is nuclear, and that's just what they do over there. However, when you start talking about electricity and the electrical grid and the industrial controls, the risk and threats, and as you and I have discussed much before, and as I have said many times throughout my career in teaching advanced cyber threat hunting techniques, tactics, and procedures, is thought the bad guys have more opportunity and ability to move quickly and with speed because they have more time, more money, and more resources to be able to identify. Because remember, organizations are focused on writing policies and procedures, standing up to protocols, putting in place the, the frameworks by which to secure the environment, meet regulatory compliance. The criminal network and the, the bad actor framework does not have that same level of restriction. So they can move any number of directions very quickly gain insight to the potential threat vectors and, and opportunities to get inside the environment, do the damage that they're going to do, and plan in, in a much longer way to be able to affect those changes and, and actually be able to take advantage of the threats and vulnerabilities that are out there in a much more rapid fashion. So by the time you are trying to close the, 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 the threat and the vulnerability on the most recent attack, they've already moved on. And they're much, much farther ahead. So when you look at from nuclear to electrical to automobiles, 
knowing that the rapid change that is occurring uh, in the technology that is now coming, and if we're not building security into those operational environments from day one of the software that we're looking to use into the controls that we're wanting to put in place, including at the vehicle level, then you're introducing no matter the speed of desire or the desire of speed to get it to market, if the security controls are not there and not built in from day one, then the bad guys will find a way in and ultimately, unfortunately, cause damage associated with that. Absolutely. And although, as I said, <laughs> there is definitely an overlap and we've kind of touched on that a little bit now, we focused on OT and specifically, you know, some of the commercial risks there. And similar to as you were saying about the nuclear uh, instance where people think, mm, well, I'm not near a nuclear power station, it's not my problem. Let's focus, uh, if we can, on IoT, which is does have a far more direct impact on consumers. And what do you see as being the, the biggest risk or the things that people should be most aware of when they're purchasing new kind of smart devices and purchasing IoT devices? Well, the first thing I would ask uh, is, well, let me rephrase that. I would be thinking in the context of what type of security is in place. Now, understanding culturally that is not where we are as a society, and that's that's global. It's the desire for the technology, I would say, is greater than the desire for having security in place. Everyone talks about privacy for sure. Everyone's interested in privacy. Everyone's interested in their governments having the necessary laws in place to protect them, and they're assuming that the governments of the world are going to do that. Uh, however, while it's true they may put those laws into place, the technology is still moving at a very rapid pace. And by the time uh, the governments ultimately find out that necessary privacy isn't in place in a new technology, it becomes a challenge. So the Internet of Things is one such example of that. And whether that's a connected car, a connected vehicle, or connected product of some orientation, either in an appliance or into the human being, uh, how is it you're able to put in place the necessary security controls and be able to protect the human being down at that consumer level? So when you start thinking about the security that's going to be needed, this is a this is a game changer as to when we start talking about security. Because understanding that right now, the, the skills for IoT and OT, for that matter, just closing the gap on the skills for OT is a challenge in and of itself. And I don't want to jump too far ahead here in the questions that we're going to be and discussing and having a, a dialogue around. But with IoT, it's equally challenging. How do you address cybersecurity down to the individual consumer level? And knowing that those devices are moving very rapidly in, in their ways of getting, should I say, in their process of getting to market. And that is really, I would say, one of the challenges that we face as it relates to IoT. The, the marketing associated with presenting these technologies in the marketplace is such that when you see it, naturally, the desire to have it surpasses the desire for the security it needs to be in place to protect you. And so to answer your question is, what are the first things you should be thinking about with the trajectory of these new technologies and the innovation that are coming out? 
is how will how will I be protected? How will my family be protected? And what is the privacy or privacy controls in place uh, that will equally protect uh, my information? So I, those would be the types of questions I would be thinking about and asking before I actually made an acquisition of a specific technology. At least that's my opinion. Sure. And that's for someone that works in uh, technology and, and in, sorry, in uh, cybersecurity. One thing I think, oh, I've got a couple of questions actually, if I may. So first of all, you mentioned culturally, we're not where we need to be in terms of thinking about security. So my first question would be, who's responsible for that culture? And second to that, who would be responsible for ensuring that these products that are available in the US or in the UK, where I'm at, um, who's responsible for ensuring that what they're buying is secure? For instance, we look at um, some products that come from China or come from Asia or come from other countries where maybe security isn't so stringent. People buy these smart devices, smart kettles, smart fridges, smart toasters, whatever it is. They plug it in at home and they assume you know, because they've bought it online, that it's going to be secure by design. It's often not. So two questions, who's responsible for setting that culture? And then who's responsible at the point of consumption, would you say? Well, it's a great question. I would say that the originating company that is going to ultimately sell that product into the market as the responsibility of designing and building the security controls to protect the consumer. That's where it begins. However, equally, the consumer has a responsibility to provide input into the marketplace to protect their own privacy and their own security and own interest as it relates to that. And if we do not and are not proactive in introducing ourselves or inserting ourselves into that process to give them feedback as to what the expectations are, then that product gets delivered with the minimal amount of controls necessary to conserve cost and get that product to market as rapidly as possible to drive revenue. And so to answer your question about who is responsible, everyone's responsible. However, it does start with the, the originating company that is designing and building that technology for the market to begin with, of which, as we have just discussed, the consumer demand is there. So what is the consumer's responsibility in that process? So, when, but however, uh, the challenge is, is that when something inevitably happens and someone is affected by that technology, naturally, lawsuits begin and naturally they want to go after the manufacturers of said technology and and certainly be um, have the ability to take action on uh, of the effects associated with what they receive from the impact of that technology. However, no one really wants to discuss their own set of responsibility of introducing and inserting themselves into the process to say, here's what I'm looking for in any technology that I'm looking to buy from your type of company. And here's what I'm looking for to achieve that. So that now that kind of goes into your second question. And where does the consumer, where is the consumer's responsibility? I think that leads back into the manufacturing process as well. 
However, culturally, we're not set up for that, right? The consumer assumes, and that assumption can be certainly lethal uh, in the context as when you start talking about things like connected car, connected vehicle, and things of that nature. When a vehicle is moving, a data center on wheels is moving down a highway at a very rapid pace, that is not the time to be saying, oh, let me think about security, right? Uh, it's the time you want to insert, and the consumer's responsibility is to say, if I'm going to drive this type of vehicle, then I'm assuming and I'm going to say that I would like to know and ask the logical questions as to what type of security is being put in place. Naturally, they're not going to share the intellectual property or uh, the types of technology that's being used, but certainly they can set expectations. It could get the consumers can set expectations as to what they're looking for to be protected. However, in most cases, that is left to the individual manufacturer, whether that's an automobile or a device of some sort, even down to the consumer level that may be worn. That's assumed that it's built in. Um, and unfortunately, the consumer doesn't feel that they have a responsibility in that regard, and I think that's a mistake. Sure. And I think to, to add to that, one of the big issues is people want to keep up with uh, what they see around them. They want the the latest device they want uh, the latest bit of tech and whether it's people are unaware or they just turn a blind eye to the fact that actually you're by buying this technology you know inherently there are risks here and i guess that brings me on to the next question so you spoke about how it's sort of everyone's responsibility um and i think unfortunately you know when there is that sort of diffusion of responsibility in some sense everyone's like well if someone else is buying it i may as well buy it um how do you think we can nudge consumer behavior do we need more education around these risks as you said with connected cars or smart cars you know it's a data center on wheels do you think people are aware and turning a blind eye or do you think there needs to be more education on the risks of these smart devices well, I would say psychologically that it's a couple of things. In one area, I would say ignorance is bliss, right? If I'm ignorant to, and I mean that in in, in a very respectful way, I'm, I'm certainly not wanting to say that in a disrespectful way. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss, right? And uh, in in that way, if I don't know and something happens, then I can hold somebody accountable and responsible for that. And that doesn't include me, if that is my thinking. The other is, yes, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And so that thing, that's the group where education is important. Education can be certainly brought to bear. Uh, but then again, how do you educate the consumer to feel some level of responsibility to be able to do something? I think that's where the paralysis comes in, is to say, well, I don't know what to do or even how to do it. Uh, I don't know who to talk to. I don't know who to contact. And in a lot of cases, and that comes back to the ignorance is bliss philosophy, uh, well, since I don't know what to do and I don't know who to contact, it's not my responsibility, so therefore I'm going to hold them accountable when something goes wrong. Uh, and that is a, a very dangerous way of operating going forward, seeing that the smart car, to use your terms, uh, is going to be on our streets, you know, prolifically over the next five years. And, and then how, and is it too late at that point to say, well, could have, would have, should have, but did not, right? So I think to your point is we definitely need to educate 
down to the consumer level because up to this point, it has been primarily the education of corporations and companies and security teams within the companies to say, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And how can we help build and, and design a better security environment proactively before the product is actually delivered? Going forward, and when you get into things like smart cars, for example, when that vehicle is already on the street, it's a little bit too late to say, well, I should have done something after there's been multiple accidents associated with a certain situation due to a threat of vulnerability that has been uh, uh, taken advantage of and they've been able to execute against that across multiple vehicles. Now, granted, they still want to hold someone accountable and responsible for that. So I think education is certainly critical. Whether or not it will be enough, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but whether or not it will be enough to shift the cultural mindset for the consumer to feel responsibility, that will take time. As you know, uh, it took 20 years for uh, companies to bring security forward um, and out of the closet, so to speak, in the context of it being seen as a an important factor to the operating environment and taking the serious business decisions to do something about it. It took many, many years. Uh, how do you achieve that in such a way to where technology is moving so rapidly that consumers are trying to make choices just strictly on the technology itself? And then you've got multiple manufacturers across many different types of uh, devices and technologies, not just in vehicles and smart cars, but across multiple types of devices for IoT. So which vehicle, or should I say, which technology are you going to focus on? All right, so smartwatches. Is it uh, defibrillators for monitoring heartbeats? Which ones are you going to focus on? And will the consumer take the initiative and the action to, to really do their homework and their research to figure out what is it they're actually doing and what role do I play to help design better security that I'm looking for if I'm going to use that technology? Sure. And I think the whole ignorance is bliss mentality kind of sums up the problem um, quite nicely. And I think particularly, I mean, not just um, in the US and the UK, but living in such consumerist societies, it is going to be difficult to say to people, you know, take a breath, think about the security uh, and whether their security has been kind of embedded or built into these products, you know, that's going to be a, a massive cultural shift for these societies that are used to, you know, buy buy something, ask questions later. So I guess that leads us on quite nicely to um, my next question, which is around the, where's, where's security at? How well equipped are we to keep up with the ever-evolving, ever-changing uh, IT landscape, all the products that are coming out, is, is security playing catch-up or, you know, how, how well able are we to um, secure these products? Well, I pause for clarity. I pause because the, 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 the dichotomy of what, you're, what we're facing, not just you and I, but what we're facing globally is that the technology, as we have discussed, is moving so rapidly and that the technology roadmaps and designs that are needing to come forward at a more uh, rapid pace to be competitive 
is how do you design and build security into those environments? And that would be one of the questions, I think, going back to what we are talking about earlier about consumers and companies is, what are manufacturers and third-party providers doing to build security into those operating environments? Now, if we are assuming that the desire to get a technology, no matter which domain it falls into, is greater than building the security into the operating environment, then that will be the focus. And if the consumers are not responsible or don't feel responsible culturally to do their homework and to do the research to find out what they're doing to build security into these technologies, then those technologies rapidly come to market and become part of the cultural operating environment of what we're facing. Now, with all of that said, the bad guys, if I can use that term for purposes of simplicity here, understand all of this. They understand the psychology, they understand the culture, they understand exactly how the, the roadmaps of technologies are being developed and how they're coming to market. And they also recognize that in a lot of cases, security is something to a lot of cases gets looked over for purposes of trying to get that technology to market faster. And they may look over a need to put in place the privacy controls and the security controls to protect a company, an individual, uh, or something along those lines. And so with that understanding, then the bad guys, as we discussed earlier, having more time, more money, more resources, have the ability to quickly get into those technologies. And in some cases, even before the technology hits the market, has the ability to extract intellectual property of the engineering diagrams and determine what those threats or vulnerabilities can be and then be able to then know what they are as the technology gets ready to hit the market. And so whatever goal of the bad actors are, uh, whether that's got to do with trying to make a political statement or it's a nation state uh, for national security, or we're looking to embarrass uh, someone and, and ruin their reputation, or at least affect their reputation, the number of reasons why, and of course, the last one, and, and certainly not to be overlooked, is just the pure greed factor of wanting to be able to exploit the environment for greed purposes. Ransomware comes to mind as one such example. And so with all this in mind, knowing that technology is getting faster, it needs to get to market faster to be competitive, the consumers not feeling the need or responsibility to ask the tough questions and do the research to determine what type of privacy and security controls are being put into place. And then adding on top of that and exacerbating the situation are the bad guys and the bad actors themselves looking to affect uh, change and execute their own plan and strategy for being able to cause harm in some cases, including physical and human life uh, to human life. And then, of course, greed, ransomware and other factors that they're looking for financial reasons. Uh, and on down the line into reputation. So all of that is what I, what I consider to be the perfect storm of a situation where no one feels responsible, no one feels that they're accountable, that it's moving so rapidly it could put all this in a summary, and, and that it creates a perfect storm scenario by which I'll just accept it for what it is because I love the technology more than I am worried about anything else. And that is certainly a very challenging situation to be in 
as more and more these types of things become uh, more prolific in the market and affect the individual down to the human being level. Interesting. I had, I had a question that kind of immediately always sprung to mind um, as you're talking there. I think when we look at threat actors, bad actors, the bad guys, whatever we want to call them, their ability to pivot and stay one step ahead of the regulators um, and think, you know, where's where's IT now getting into, whether it's internet of medical things, for instance, and thinking, well, yeah, we'll go there because the regulators are playing catch-up, for instance, or the focus is in elsewhere in critical national infrastructure. One thing I find as a recruiter when I'm speaking to companies, um, they want we joke and call it unicorn hunting when they want someone that's had 10 years in industry they want them to have worked in automotive and done ot and you know done cyber security and we might send them over a candidate that spent most of their time in critical critical national infrastructure in some capacity and has done ot and cyber security but because they've not been in automotive there's that kind of well they're not right they're not in the right industry how much I guess the question I'm trying to ask is how much do you think there needs to be a paradigm shift from a hiring manager and a company perspective to think, well, actually, we can take someone that's close enough and they can learn the industry, but we need to get those people there. Because I encounter with a lot of these clients, you know, they might be waiting for six, eight, ten months longer for the right person to only then realize that they need to relax their expectations a little bit. Um, so from that standpoint, knowing that the bad actors are moving so quickly, do you think we need to compromise or relax the expectations from a hiring perspective somewhat? Well, there are a few things I'm going to say here. Um, I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago, that the regulators are one step behind. Uh, I would argue that there are multiple steps behind. In fact, it's, um, it's challenging for regulators to even remotely keep pace with anything that uh, the threat actors are currently working on. If the threat actors are getting access to the roadmaps, in some cases, of where a company's headed and their trajectory, then naturally they're going to dive, divest, or should I say they are going to dive into the specific technology for rapidly and start to figure out where the threats and vulnerabilities are for exploitation. So that's one thing. Now, when you start talking about hiring, uh, hiring and let's just call it skills broadly. The challenge of the future is this, and I'll use an example of something that our, a discussion I have with a good colleague of mine. Uh, he said in, in, in operational technology and industrial controls, he said, and I disagree with him, um, but I, I, I now can see the dilemma of what we're facing. And that is, he says, give me an industrial controls OT person and I will teach them cybersecurity. And I said, I beg to differ. Um, you give me a cybersecurity person and I'll teach them industrial controls. But the truth is, the truth lies in the middle somewhere. Uh, and that's the challenge. And that goes into your hiring paradigm shift that is equally a challenge. Now, again, I'm coming back to the perfect storm scenario. You have unrealistic expectations from organizations looking to hire to find that perfect candidate that meets a specific industry requirement, specific skill requirement, 
and then cross over between, let's just use automotive, for example, connective vehicle terminology and engineering concepts into cybersecurity and vice versa. So you have someone who's been formally trained in IT and cybersecurity, but has no experience in engineering or smart car connected vehicle type engineering concepts. And therefore that is a leap uh, for them to be able to make. So let's use another example, vehicle security operation centers. What is the skill set required to do vehicle sock monitoring in the future? Well, the challenge is, is that someone with a traditional IT security background or SOC analyst background, someone will say, well, I'll just take that person and make them a vehicle SOC analyst. Well, it's not that simple. Uh, it, it requires a lot of knowledge of inboard and offboard and or in-car and out-of-car knowledge, engineering and otherwise, to be able to determine where the threats or vulnerabilities are associated with that vehicle. So now with all of this in mind, to answer your question about hiring and closing the skills gap, I will say it is an impossible task at this stage because it goes back to what we discussed at the top of this conversation when we first started. And that is, is that technology is moving very rapidly. So knowing that technology is moving rapidly, first, not asking the questions about what security is being designed and built into the actual operating environment before the technology comes to market if that's not happening and we know we don't have the skills presently to be able to address that then how do we close the skills gap knowing that the, the threat and bad actor community is moving rapidly themselves to be able to exploit these operating environments then how do you close the skills gap and do it in such a way to where the company looking to hire that person truly has the skill. By the time that person gets ramped up into that organization, you now have technologies that have gone out to the market and they are playing catch up themselves to technologies that's existing in the market, not even touching the future roadmaps as to what is about to come to market in the future. So it's a true challenge and juxtaposition that we are all in as it relates to cybersecurity. And I would say in my closing comment around this topic around hiring and skills is that the skills of the future uh, are going to need have a combination one to your point industry knowledge uh, specific domain expertise so if it's industry then what are they going to be doing within industry if, if we're talking about smart cars or automotive that's another example uh, ot is going to be something that we're going to need to know Cybersecurity is going to be something they're going to need to know. They're going to need to know the vehicles themselves if we're using that as the example. So you can take that construct and apply it to nuclear, electrical, or anything else for that matter. And therein lies what I consider to be the middle ground that the threat and bad actors are going to exploit is because they know that the organizations, while writing their policies and procedures, can't close the skills gap fast enough and therefore are now exposed because they're busy looking for the perfect candidate. Perfect candidate doesn't exist because the gap's getting wider and wider as the technology becomes faster and faster and getting to market. And so closing that skills gap along with the processes needed to secure the operating environment is getting faster and the need to do so is going to need to get faster. And therein lies 
the perfect storm scenario. So that is going to affect the hiring process by which organizations are going to need to reevaluate as to the type of skills and what are they willing to sacrifice and settle for in the context of getting the perceived perfect candidate uh, on board within their environment. Right, that was uh, massively insightful, and something sprung to mind as as you were um, giving that answer there, and it's something that came up um, on one of my previous podcasts when um, I had various CISOs or thought leaders um, in the kind of realm of OT, and they were talking, um, sort of point the finger unintentionally at whose fault they thought it was, and one of the ideas that came up was maybe the difficulty of when a say it's a CISO, a technical lead, um, whoever the person is that's writing the job spec um, or understands the requirements for their role, tries to translate that to HR. When HR then write the job spec, it sort of then gets lost in translation what the requirements actually are. Do you think, well, firstly, um, I'd like to know if you have an opinion on that. And secondly, do you think that these technical leaders, these people that actually understand the technical requirements need to sort of be at the table and be more involved in the discussions with HR and more involved in the hiring process? Because if they know fundamentally that we can take a control systems engineer from, I'm not going to name names, but can take control systems from one of the big sort of suppliers and you know what, actually they're doing a cybersecurity masters or they've got a good background in cybersecurity, they're a good enough fit, although they don't call themselves an OT cybersecurity specialist, as maybe HR will glam the title up to be. But at this point, I've noticed on a number of uh, requirements I've had that the hiring managers never see these profiles because they get stopped at HR because the person I'm sending over has only ever called themselves an electrical engineer or an industrial control system engineer. So I guess to summarize and re-ask that question, where do you think that bottleneck is? And do you think there's more that can be done at that technical lead level or the people that understand the requirements? Should they be more at the table uh, and sifting through CVs themselves? Well, I think that uh, that's a cultural challenge in organizations. And so if they do not have an internal process to work together and bring the, the technical skills inside of their organization to the table for conversation to first help draft the job rec of, and the skills needed, getting the right title for the types of people that we're looking for, understanding that there are uh, flex, of, flex points, let's call them flex points, of saying that, okay, if we can get 70% there, if we can get 50% there, that I can train them up to this other bar of what we need to be able to get there, knowing that I'm not going to get the 100% perfect candidate. So first of all, culturally, if they're not doing that, that needs to change because it, they need to have those people at the table in conversation. Now, the balancing effect to that is, is that you also don't want to have purely the technical resources saying it's this way and only this way. So you're going to want a balance of, of insight and skills to say, all right, this person needs to have a combination of things, but the balance point of all that is, is that when I bring in those candidates, if they can meet X percent of what these requirements are, then we have a starting point for dialogue. And then if we have an agreement on what those 
profiles are, and we know what those parameters are that we're going to bring those candidates in, then you should be able to get in a number of different potential candidates that can get over to the hiring manager for review and determine whether or not you have a potential skill set. Because you may have a, a diamond in the rough with someone. They may not have every skill that you're looking for, but are highly motivated to do whatever is necessary to learn what's needed and become your best expert within your organization because you saw the value of what it is that they potentially could bring in the future. So that leads me to the next point of saying you have to have enough experience to determine and say, I see something here in this potential person, and I think I can train them and invest in them to get them where they need to be to become a person and the skills that I need within this organization. It's going to take time. Now, that's not going to close your gap as it relates to the threat actors moving rapidly, but it does at least help you in the context of understanding the culture, the process, and the actions needed to take to be able to establish the parameters and the profiles and and the needs of getting those uh, CVs in and getting them to the hiring manager. Sure. And I guess uh, that whole diamond in the rough, um, focusing on attitude and motivation is going to be massively important given that, as we've mentioned several times, the technology is changing and evolving rapidly. You're not going to get like I sometimes I st- still see job specs that ask for five years experience of something that's not really been a thing for five years. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, securing internet of medical things, devices, and expect people to have years experience in that. Um, and then they've got the budget constraints as well. So I think attitude and motivation has definitely got to play a big part, you know, going forward. And it, sometimes that's obviously difficult for people to get across in their CV. And so on that what do you think from a candidate's perspective um for you when you've been a hiring manager when you've had that responsibility what the standout things for you what helps you identify a diamond in the rough well i will say that it it, it varies uh depends on what it is i need to achieve but uh whether or not i'm leading a project internal to a company that i'm working for and I need to identify candidates internally to work on a project. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the potential uh, probability of them being able to execute. So I may not have a perfect situation. So let's just say if, if I'm focused on external hiring and I'm looking for skills, it depends on which level that we're referring to. If we're talking about someone that's fresh out of university, that's one approach. Um, and that's why I come to consider it an early candidate into the industry that has interest and are motivated. How I approach that and how I bring them up to speed is going to be, of course, vastly different than someone that has five years of experience, 10 years of experience, or 15 years of experience, and so on and so forth. And so it really varies as to how I'm going to approach that. So it, really, it comes back to, I think, what we were just discussing just a moment ago is what is it that we're looking for in the candidate? What is the bar that we're willing to set? How flexible are we going to be? And what investment are we willing to make? And when I understand all those parameters as a potential hiring manager, then I will say then, here are the types of CVs I'd like to see come across my desk. And then at that point, if that person is somewhere between say 50 to 70% and can get there, 
Or I say, I want an early candidate fresh out of university and I'll train them up as long as they come with this type of degree. Uh, then from that point, I'm looking at a number of different factors, personality type, level of motivation. What is it that, that they have interest in? And I'm going to evaluate that not just purely on a cybersecurity level. I'm going to be looking at that from a human being perspective and what are their goals, desires, and initiatives as to what they're trying to achieve in the future and how motivated are they to really become an expert in their field. So that's how I approach it typically. And everyone deserves an opportunity. If, if every single day organizations wake up and say, I'm not hiring unless I find the ideal candidate, the absolute perfect candidate, well, they're going to be waiting a very long time because the skills gap is growing wider and wider wider to be able to keep up with the changing threat landscape and and the threat actors know this and they're exploiting it to their to the greatest degree possible so as the delays in hiring the perfect candidate associated with hiring the perfect candidate continues then we will experience a cons considerable greater challenges on how we close these gaps and ask the right tough questions around securing and designing appropriate security for the organization. And meanwhile, these uh, recs and these, uh, uh, these skills and the need to get this potential skill on board stays open and never gets filled because of these types of challenges. Yeah, it's a, it's a, absolutely is a massive challenge. Um, and it, it'd been interesting getting your thoughts, um, from it you know, obviously from a professional kind of security standpoint. Now, one thing we have discussed away from security, and you mentioned um, in your last answer there about the kind of the human aspect of of hiring, looking beyond the technical capabilities. We discussed this, um, obviously, the, the other week. What are your fears or thoughts on um, the topic of today connected something Aside from security, what do you think are the benefits and the risks of uh, this increase in uh, connectivity of increased in connected devices? Well, the the benefits, let's start with the benefits. Um, as with all things, a tool is a tool is a tool, is it not? And whether it's a hammer or it's a saw, um, that tool is there for a reason. And it's no different with any technology, in my opinion. It's a tool. Uh, however, when tools are given to someone that doesn't have the necessary level of maturity or knowledge or the ability to use that tool in the right purpose for the right purposes and means, then the benefits start to be skewed somewhat. But there are a number of benefits. So let's take you know medical technology, for example, you mentioned earlier. Uh, so lots of benefits associated with using advanced technologies to help human beings. Uh, equally, the, the ability to move that technology rapidly into that industry is an, of, of very significant importance. However, threat actors know this as well, and they're going to exploit that. So there's lots of benefits with these different technologies. You know, the, the desire uh, of needing to go green and being have more sustained sustainable technologies like for example smart cars etc uh to get off of petrol fuel i understand the reasons behind that however are, are we hurting ourselves by not building and designing security into these operating environments before they get there 
And so that comes to the risk side of the equation is that if we're not evaluating this in such a way to where we can understand the risk reward scenario, what damage are we doing? So now psychologically and culturally, the desire to acquire the technology becomes greater than the desire to protect one's privacy or protect their life. And, and until such time something happens, then that's one of the challenges that we're facing in the risk-reward scenario. So I think that psychologically and philosophically, uh, I would encourage people to think about what is it that value-wise that they will actually get from the technology they're looking to acquire. Ask the appropriate questions and really determine whether or not is there a risk or benefit associated with using this technology and employ it to the greatest benefit of others. And so, you know, if you're going to acquire technology, then, you know, that's a number of different ways of, of looking at this. And I think having the level of maturity of asking the tough questions, of evaluating the benefits and the risks associated with these technologies is a bit of a challenge. But unfortunately, culturally, and this is a global paradigm that we're dealing with. Culturally and maturity-wise, it's a challenge for most people to make that leap. And I think that's something we're going to have to change if we really want to employ these technologies for the greatest benefit of all. So we need to think about, you know, our values and connecting our, um, pardon the pun, connecting our values with, you know, what we're using this technology for so we can get the greatest good out of it. Now, if we're looking particularly at younger generations, you know, people who naturally aren't going to, you know, know what their values are, what their beliefs are, they're not, they're just going to want to keep up with their friends. What would you say would be your greatest advice for them? I'm pausing, Dave, because this is a very important question. I have uh, children myself that are of your age group and you know, I'm naturally am concerned. And I would say that prior to acquiring a specific technology or a tool, if you want to call it that, is I would ask a number of questions. What's the benefit, not just to myself, but what's the benefit to others? What's the level of maturity that I have to leverage this technology in positive ways? Is it driven strictly by selfish means and selfish reasons? And again, I do not mean that disrespectfully. Everyone has the right to make their individual decisions. However, we equally have a responsibility to society. And that is, is that if we're acquiring these technologies just because it's the cool latest technology or gadget that's out there in the marketplace today, and yet we did not build the security in and we didn't hold companies accountable to build the security in, even at the, the younger generation level. If we're not starting somewhere to start holding these companies accountable to building security into the operating environment, then it ultimately will affect them. And these are all things that younger generations need to be thinking about. And one other last point I'll make on this as it relates to younger people, and this really applies to anyone for that matter, it's philosophically uh, knowing yourself. How comfortable are you in truly knowing yourself and how will you wield 
the technology in positive ways to help others. So if you're going to become an expert in a field, then become an expert in such a way that is a benefit to others. Use the technologies in such a way that is a benefit to others. Uh, no question you can use the technology and, and employ it yourself for, for, that will benefit your own life and your own family as a younger person and, and certainly use it that way in the right way. Um, but I would be asking the question is, what can I do to use these technologies to help others, including looking at the security of these technologies and coming into market? I think when we shift our perspective of strictly looking at technology as technocracy and saying that technology will solve my problem, which in case it will not, and saying, what do I need to do to address my own challenges first? And then saying, once I've addressed my own challenges personally, I will then be able to be mature enough to understand how the use of these technologies can be benefit to myself, my family, and to others. Then we're starting to get on the right path and a trajectory that says, I will now start to employ these technologies for the right reasons and not for selfish reasons. And I think when we start to make that shift in thinking is when technology can truly be employed for the right reasons. So that's my philosophical point of view on how technology can be secured as well as be employed for the right reasons in the future by younger generations. Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this whole conversation so far, but I think particularly touching on that philosophical and psychological kind of aspect, there's, you know, not everyone that's going to be listening to this is technical um, and people that are technical might have differing opinions on, on the pros and cons of, you know, this new technology. But, but I think from a philosophical and a psychological standpoint, it's something that definitely needs to be integrated more within the kind of the security world, I think. Um, now we've covered a lot on today's today's discussion i think i've checked off most of the things that i wanted to cover have you got any closing thoughts anything you wanted to bring up that we've not yet discussed well first of all thank you dave for the opportunity to, to uh share some of my insight in both security and otherwise but in closing i would just simply say that we're at a demarcation point right now where society can move one direction or the other. If we close our eyes, if we close the blinders and we close our perspective to the world of simply saying that technology for technology's sake is the answer to our challenges in the future, that is a grave mistake. Uh, if, however, we're willing to do the necessary work to look at ourselves, look at our societies, look at our communities and do the work necessary to work with each other to close our challenges and address our most significant challenges we're facing and work as communities and societies to be able to do that, then technology can become a great benefit to societies going forward, but it requires maturity to be able to do that. And until such time, we're willing to do the necessary work and ask the tough questions of ourselves and reach that level of maturity is when we'll truly be ready to be able to wield these technologies in positive ways to help society all over the world. So those are my closing comments and security is one thing, but the use of these technologies in positive ways, in my opinion, is equally as paramount. So I welcome the opportunity to perhaps discuss this with you in greater depth at a future time. 
absolutely i look forward to that and i just wanted to to say as well that um, served as a fantastic sort of summary of all we've discussed today so if you know if anyone's not listening the whole way through but wants to listen to that sniffer i know i'll certainly be going back over that last 30 seconds on a minute because i think it's summarized what we've spoken about um very nicely um so last thing from me is i just want to say a massive thank you again for joining me today setting aside some time thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today and yeah of course i look forward to collaborating with you on um future future podcasts great thank you very much dave appreciate the opportunity